You're listening to the America for God podcast, the show that examines the state of America and the need for God in our lives. Each week we ask the question, for a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, what must we do to survive and honor the Lord? The show is available on SoundCloud, iTunes, YouTube, and by visiting our website, AmericaForGod.com. Episode 1, Thursday, November 19th, 2020. Today on our show, we're speaking with Dr. Joseph Oyeleye. Joseph is pastor of Maple Street Baptist Church in Columbus, Mississippi, and author of the book, The Real Enemy of the African Americans, The Systematical and Deliberate Enslavement of the African American Soul Through Dependency Programs and Policies. Joseph, welcome to our show. I want to thank you, first of all, for giving me the opportunity to come on your show. Uh, I've heard so much about you, uh, but uh, it's a pleasure to be uh, at the receiving end of being interviewed today. The, the premise of this show is America for God. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of my, what I, what I believe is America is having difficulties and troubles because we've moved away from God. Amen. So talking about that, like, you know, what are your feelings about um, God's place in America and in the government and so on? About 50 years ago, I was a broadcaster too, a television broadcaster, yeah. Uh, I was born in Nigeria. I moved to the U.S. in 2001. And um, while in Nigeria, I had my first degree in economics and then uh, kind of diploma you, that you can call associate degree in theater arts and that helped me to go into uh, television production, uh, a presenter, producer of dramas and so on. Uh, but in 2000, uh, in 1986, I received a call uh, from the Lord. I ran away from this call. Uh, I ran away and I couldn't sleep for three weeks. Prior to that period of time, I had a problem, uh, and the problem had to do with the Nigerian government. Uh, the old money I made in all of my life was taken away from me in 1983 with uh, the assumption of power by the military, accusing myself and a business partner that we gave kickback. That is kind of bribe anyway. Uh, to politicians and eventually the frozen of my money, not knowing that it was the plan of God for me. I was in this situation, my wife, who was then uh, an elementary teacher, was the one supporting the family. And in 1986, and then I received the call. While I was home with our children, three children, being the father nanny now while my wife went to work. And I received the call to preach. I told myself, I'm not going to preach. I'm going to become rich in life. The amount of money that was taken away from me by the government was about $300,000. That's a different story entirely. So anyway, while the money was taken away from me in 83, and between 83 and 86, I had to use Valium to sleep. So, and um, this night, after about three weeks, refusing to become a preacher, I said to the Lord, okay, I will preach eventually. And you know what? For the first time in my life, I slept off without using Valium first time in three years. So I went uh, to theological school with the Ambassador College in Pasadena, California, got my degree in theology, and then started preaching. And um, I was on these until 1990, when some uh, Baptist uh, missionaries came from the US and they were looking for connection, and I happened to be the connection through the grace of God. 
Um, and uh, we started working and then we started planting churches about six months into the job. They told me they were going away. Why are you going away? Yeah, they said, well, we've started what the Lord told us to do. It is now left to you. And I did that for 10 years. And within 10 years, I was able to plant about 10 churches. I was able to baptize personally over 600 people who gave their lives to Christ. Go back a little bit. I was raised originally a Catholic. And I want to apologize to you now if you are a Catholic because there are some things I'm going to say against the Catholic religion. I was raised a Catholic, but I started noticing some things wrong in the Catholic religion. Like um, my father, the two times we had every day to have family devotion was in the morning and night, and then we'll pray, and then we'll recite the Ten Commandments. And the first one is, thou shalt not have any image before you, thou shalt not bow to it, thou shalt not worship it, and even things in heaven, on earth, and beneath the earth. And then I, when we go to church, We'll see images, they call it images now, but statues of Mary and all the other saints. I started questioning inside me, what's going on? The first commandment says we should not bow to these things. And where we are, if we are passing by, we'll bow down and we'll do the, uh, the sign of the cross. So at the age, and then the, the other ones had to do with this second major one had to do with um, uh, you are going to go to hell if you sin. And I was asking those who are older than me, how do you not sin so that you go to heaven? And nobody was able to give me any concrete uh, uh, reply except that we go and confess. And every Friday, we are, my parents and uh, with the children that were already baptized and confirmed, we go and confess. Next Friday, we go and do the same thing. So at the age of 17, that was 1972, I stopped going to Catholic Church. I was in spiritual wilderness between 73 and 76. But fortunately, as the Lord will have it one day, in 1976, I actually, February 18th, 1976, I was visiting a friend who had a TV set in his house. And at that point in time, Reverend Humbert, Rex Humbert, excuse me, Reverend Rex Humbert was preaching. And he was preaching about salvation, and he was preaching about how you can be saved but you have to realize yourself as a sinner going to hell. What? This is what I've been looking for. <laughs> and then at invitation, I received the call and I gave my life to Christ and it's not been the same ever since my brother. So, and it was in 19, excuse me, 2001 that the people I was working with in, uh, in Nigeria, the Americans I was working with, and uh, now said, well, we have a work in Mississippi. It's a new work, actually. We have never reached out with our association to the African-Americans. We want to reach out to them. And because of what you have achieved in Nigeria, we want you to come and work for, you, for us. Well, eventually, to cut the stories short, I agreed and came. And uh, we started the work in Columbus, Mississippi, working among the Black people. Actually, when I was interviewed for the job by the board of director of the state association of that group, I was telling them, within five minutes, I will, uh, five months, I will build a church that there are going to be at least 50 saved people in that church. And then they said, well, we are going to praise the Lord for you. 
after five months, it was myself, my wife, another Nigerian professor at Mississippi State University and his family, and one African-American. And I asked the Lord, why did you bring me here, Lord? What is happening? And then I, I was told eventually that um, as far as Christian spirituality is concerned, America is dying off. And you are going to realize by yourself. And one of the things I realized when I first started, apart from the fact that majority, though they call them, uh, they call African-Americans conservatives, spiritual and so on, it is so and it is not so. The vast majority of African-Americans, they are very, very limited as far as the knowledge of the Bible is concerned, the knowledge about true Christianity is concerned. That was the first uh, realization I faced when uh, I began to work in Mississippi. But later on, I realized also that um, the leadership, the spiritual leadership, they are not into the aspect of salvation of the soul. They are about politics and about race. And it was, you remember, there used to be what we used to call liberation theology uh, about 30, 40 years ago in South America. I realized that uh, the African-American spiritual leaders, Christians, had adopted that stance. And then instead of preaching real salvation, they were preaching liberation theology against racism and things like that, uh, inequality and things like that. Uh, and I know that we are going to get there eventually. This is what led me partly to the writing of the book uh, that uh, we talked about earlier on. So in this nutshell, that, that is uh, what um, I am. But personally, I'm married. I've been married for 36 years now. By December 22, will be 36 years. Had four children, all doing well. Actually, the oldest one, 35, she's a dentist. And the youngest one, 26, she graduated as law degree at 24. So, and the other two, in the, the ones in the middle, they are doing well. The only boy works with an airline as a computer geek. So, uh, the Lord blessed me, and mainly through obedience to him. Amen. You've been very blessed in your life. Amen, brother. I have five kids, and uh, they're younger. So my kids are from four years old to fourteen years old. But yeah, we're we're raising them in the Lord and and uh, doing homeschooling and and all that. So yeah, about homeschooling, my two oldest ones had already graduated from high school before we came. So the two youngest ones, we homeschool them. The boy there got his high school at home. The younger one, uh, when she was about to enter into high school, we sent her to Christian uh, high school. So, but we never tried the public school. Talk about your book. Uh, yeah, my book is based on the problem with the African-Americans. The name of the book is uh, The Real Enemy of African-Americans of the African-Americans. And uh, the subtitle is uh, The Systematical and Deliberate Enslavement of the African-American Soul Through Dependency Programs and Policies. So that is the subtitle. But the main title is The Real Enemy of the African-Americans. You see, when I got here in 2001, uh, the first thing I realized is that um, whenever I was, I traveled, and um, I had to rent a motel room. The people I usually met at the desk were the Asians. 
Asian uh, Americans of Asian stocks, especially Indians. And then um, whenever I go to buy gas, and I had to go in to pay or to buy some soda or things like that, the people I usually met at the counter are Arabs, people of Arab descent. Then I started asking myself, where are my people? What are they doing in, in the neighborhood that I was working then? It was predominantly black, but it used to be a white neighborhood. But because of things going on, the white people started moving out of that neighborhood. So predominantly, at least 99% of the people in that neighborhood when I got there are black people. And then the only thing I see every morning is young people roaming the streets, and um, that, that, that's all. So what's going on? I started asking questions. But I have to tell you the truth. Uh, my white people friends didn't want to tell me. They wanted me to learn by myself. But um, I couldn't take it any longer, so I went to a Christian brother of blessed memory now. And I asked him, what is going on in this country? I've seen Asian Americans. I have seen Arab Americans doing so well. What's going on with my people? Then I brother told me, Brad Joseph, I know you, you have been struggling with this, but the point is that things are not the same with African Americans. They believe and trust more in government than themselves. And I wouldn't tell you more than that. I want you to look. So I started looking, really. And then I started to see that the women in my community were making it, African-American women, were making it more than the men. The men are relying, dependent on the women. So what's going on? And some... And by this time, about two or three other African-Americans were attending church. So they told me, oh, Pastor Joseph, our men live on us. Mostly, they are not going to do anything. Um, and then by this time again, by, by, uh, that would be about a year later, I had about four men, so I said, you know what, we can make it. Let's do something. Let's contribute according to how much you are able to provide for this investment. I am going to let you know that investing this money in a business that we are going to run by ourselves, you can, we can make it. And they were looking at me as if I was crazy. And you cannot believe it. That was the end of this man coming to church. That was the end. They didn't come again. And actually, by the time I left in 2016, all throughout, I think I have about five men, African-Americans in church. So in 2017, I started uh, 2007, excuse me, I had raised enough fund through tax refund and things like that. Blessings from people who are now supporting their missionary. I was able to start a retail business, selling apparels and shoes and things like that. And you cannot believe it. These men and these people will come to me, Pastor Joseph, we need help. Can you loan me $5, $20, and so on? At the initial stage, I was trying to help and see whether that would really change the, these people's mind, but never. 
I was not able to succeed. So by 2012, I decided to sell out the business with a profit. Yeah, but one of the things I realized is that um, the civil leaders, uh, the political leaders, and the spiritual leaders, like we said earlier on, really have aided and abetted those people to not want to self-enhance themselves. So it was based on this that I realized that America is a land of opportunity. When I was telling you about my family the other time, my children, every one of them is on his or her own now, based not on my power, not on my strength, God's grace and the opportunities that are available in America. And nobody, nobody is saying anybody should not tap on these opportunities. When my children, my two older ones entered into college, government gave Pell Grant, I think it was 4,500 then. So I had to add a little more to it. And that's all. And that is how they got out of undergraduate program and enter into graduate programs and on. And you want to start a business? Why don't you save some few dollars and see how it goes from there. And then we start to blame, we start to blame the rich people, uh, like um, uh, Amazon, this man Bezos, and um, Gates being too rich. Well, my philosophy, and these are all in my book anyway, my philosophy about this is this. America has not got a pot of gold hidden somewhere, or pots of gold hidden somewhere that people had to go and look for. These people are rich because of the application of their human ingenuity, and thereby providing millions of jobs to other people. Take the money away from them today. And what is going to happen, my brother, is that in five years, we have nothing left. So what are we going to do? We are going to turn to uh, Venezuela? Is that what people want? Or you go out and work and earn a living, and if it is possible, become rich. So the, these are some of the principles that my book is based on. The today, I argue that, um, uh, slavery is the cause of the problem. No, I said no. The cause of the problem is your total reliance on government support for survivor. And it happened in 1965 with uh, uh, President Johnson's uh, welfare program. Do you know that before then, 78% of African American families are together, married couples, 78%. Today, it is 24 or 25% married African-Americans. And how did this happen? The program says, if you are a single mother, you earn more paycheck. Oh, no, not paycheck, the check from government. The welfare check the welfare check. And then what did they do? They started living in, asking the men to go out to find a, a place for himself so that the family can earn more welfare check. And from there, the women started to realize that, oh no, we can make so much on our own without being married. And today we have women having uh, children eight or nine children from seven, eight fathers, and men having 12 children from 10 or more mothers. 
because of this. And then what will happen when the father is not there? Yeah, they don't have a role model. There, there, there's no role model. There's no, there, there's nothing to inspire these young people to do the right thing, to take the right path. I think also a big part of um, what's wrong with, with the U.S., not just in the black community, but in general, is, um, you know, people have this, I want to get rich mentality, right? Mm -hmm. And they, they have this distorted perception of, of what it's like to be wealthy and have a lot of money and they see the flashiness of all the stars, you know, the sports stars and the music stars and Hollywood and so on. And I'll tell you one, um, I'm really looking forward to reading your book. I, I'm, I've ordered a copy of it, but also there's another book that was really influ influential to me. In fact, one, one of my favorite books other than obviously the Bible is called The Millionaire Next Door. Have you heard of that one? Mm -hmm. The Millionaire Next Door talks about how, like, you know, 90% of the people that are millionaires in, in America, they're driving like a beat up Pinto. You know, they live in normal neighborhoods, you know, kind of like Warren Buffett, right? You know, he, drive, he used to drive a really old beat up Honda. He didn't have like a Jaguar <laughs> or a Mercedes or whatever. And it was just talking about how people that um, people are really frugal, right? They live an austere lifestyle and save and they don't invest their money in, in um, they invest their money in appreciable assets. You know, those things that are going to generate more w money and wealth and so on. So your point about, you know, accumulating wealth and, and getting into a position where you're comfortable and you have safety and, and security in life it's not like somebody's going to drop a whole bucket of money on you like you're saying right um it, it takes time it takes work it takes sweat equity and, and so on right mm -hmm. and um uh, another problem with that is uh, the ostentatious lifestyle of these celebrities uh, um, um sportsmen and women, not many women anyway, but uh, singers, they are, they are ostentatious or extravagant lifestyle. And younger ones believe that that's the real thing in support of what you are saying. But in my book, I said, these are not inspiring uh, uh, people that younger people should look up to. Because for instance, many of them become broke after a while. I, I mentioned the names of some of them. I remember that um, this man, happy that he's trying to recover now, uh, Mike Tyson, and $100 million in his uh, boxing career. He was broke by the time that um, he stopped boxing. Entirely broke. He's, there is a kind of uh, um, rebuilding that is happening in his life now. And there was even a time that it was being rumored that Jack, Michael Jackson was broke. And that, that apart, look at uh, the, the situation in which these people get rich and they forget about the neighborhood where they began. They don't go back there. They don't encourage those who are still struggling that this is the way to do it. You are not doing it right. This is how you're going to do it. So apart from uh, bad leadership of uh, the civil, political, and spiritual leaders, the so-called black elites, they, they are not there. And the educated ones amongst us, they are even the worst. Let me give you an example. Once I, I am a doctor of healthcare management and leadership, I made my mark educationally. Then I looked down on fellow blacks. I don't want to have anything to do with them. It is one thing amongst the educated ones, I hope they listen to this program. It is one thing to not like what is happening in your community but it is another thing 
to try to change that situation. Rather than changing the situation in the African-American communities by the educated elite, they look down on their own. You are nobody. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Uh, let me give you an example. By the time that I was going to sell my uh, retail store, majority of the people, that was in 2012, a year before my daughter graduated as, as a dentist, 98% uh, of my customers, you cannot believe it, are white. Yes, only 2%. And amongst the 2%, if an educated per black person comes to my store, you know what you do is greet everybody that comes in whenever I'm there and I try to be so nice, get customer friendly and so on. Good afternoon, good morning. White people, no matter how rich they are, no matter how educated they are, they want to embrace you not physically anyway, they, 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 they want to say, yeah, you can do it, you can succeed. But you know, once in a while when an African-American that is educated comes to my store, you say, good afternoon, good morning, they just ignore you. No response, no nothing like that. So one day, one came that I knew very well in the in uh, in the community generally, and I said good and intentionally and with pure heart. Good afternoon, ma'am. She just ignored me. Then I said, "It is not you." That was the breaking point for me. It's not your point. It's not your fault that I said good afternoon. Courtesy says you should say hey whatever. Hello. But that is how bad the situation is. Now me being in the store, they believe that well, I'm earning maybe minimum wage. So I'm not in the, in the, in the same power, power with them. So they don't have anything to do with me. So that is the problem with the African-American intellectuals. On that, let me give you one more example. We are both, I met you on LinkedIn and I'm so, to the Lord for that. I have a lot of African-American friends on LinkedIn, politically, uh, conservatives. And I told them, like I told you about my book, you say, oh, we'll help you connect. Some of them have appeared on Fox News and other conservative um, uh, talk shows. I've not heard back from any one of them. I go back, yeah, I go back and say, tell them, I hope you've not forgotten me. No, no, no response. I went on, I went on for uh, what LinkedIn. I wrote, I said, I'll, I'll send you whenever I'm, uh, my restriction is lifted, I'll send you that thing, that post. And I wrote a post. I said, if we conservative blacks continue to do like this, can we blame the liberals for what they are doing that we cannot help ourselves? All I'm asking from you guys, introduce me to talk show us, but no single black person. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. One, Scott Black, is a radio host in Minneapolis. He gave me an interview. But the others that are really into going on talk shows uh, because they are conservatives, known, none of them. So that's the problem with the African-Americans. And that is part of what I wrote in this book. Well, I, I I'll, I'll be honest with you, Joseph. You know, this is this is a show that I'm just starting, so we don't have much. The show isn't going to have much exposure. I wish I could give you more. Um, I'm hoping that it will grow. I'm hoping that people will will hear this word and and it will resonate with them. 
because I, I have a burning passion for our country. I'm very patriotic. I served in the military, um, you know, and, and I, want a, I want a good future for my kids and, and your kids and everybody's kids, right? Amen. Amen. From my perspective, we, you know, everybody is an American to me. It doesn't matter if they're black American or African American or Chinese American or whatever. We're all American. We're all Americans. Amen. I, I want to help anyone and everyone that, that's, you know, eager to be helped. And um, so, yeah, but it's, it's, it's surprising to hear that, that there's not more synergy within the black community and especially amongst black conservatives because i mean <laughs> that's a that's a super rare minority right absolutely it seems like there's very few black conservatives out there or, or that are willing to say that because i i can understand i mean first of all um i i was watching um i i see some people on linkedin and twitter and stuff um you know like wayne dupree and um Larry Elder and, and others, and you know, they or, or um, like Candace Owens and so on, right? And they'll, you know, they say something, and then they, it's like not even the, the white folks are piling on them, it's like other black people are calling them totally racist names and stuff. I've been called, I've been called a racist on LinkedIn by blacks, too. <laughs> yeah, like uh, you know, Uncle Tom and all those other kinds of things, and I'm like. Wouldn't you want to lift your own people up? I mean, they, they just, it's sad. Yeah, that's the problem that we are facing, apart from the ordinary people who are finding it difficult to move themselves away from government dependency. Those of us who are already there are not ready to help those who are down, or those who are even asking for I, maybe I can say it like this, if there is nothing in me to benefit me, I'm not ready to do anything for you. That, that's what I have discovered. I remember when I had that retail store, I remember that I, some of my African-American friends, especially once said this three times, people are envious of you. And I've seen that. We are so envious that of each other that we don't want the other person to outdo it or to, out, to, to, to be better than we are. We shouldn't be. Uh, America, like um, we used to have um, um, an adage in, back in my native country. This is my country now. Now, and they say that the, the, the sky is so wide open that birds are not going to collide with each other. Birds are not going to collide. America is so expansive. There are so many opportunities. Doing what you are doing now is not going to take away uh, another person's um, expansion. And another person's expansion is not going to have an effect on you as long as you do the right thing. As long as another person does the right thing. But we have not got to that point that uh, we need to lift ourselves up. It's ingrained in, in the thinking, right? It's a scarcity mindset versus a growth mindset. You know, the, the whole zero-sum game, you win, I lose, I win, you lose. Uh, and, and you're right, the world doesn't have to be like that. You know, we can, we can have win-win solutions and scenarios and stuff. And and the other, the other harmful pattern of thinking is this whole external locus of control versus internal locus of control, right? You know, external locus of control is the idea that, you know, this is being done to me. I have no choice. I can't do anything about it. I'm just a victim. I'm just a pawn. You know, the, the government's doing this to me and they're doing this to me and that I can't succeed because of all these barriers. Whereas the internal locus of control says, I'm the master of my destiny. I make things happen. I set my mind to do something and, and I make it work. And if that's not the right thing, then I pivot and do something else, right? I hope, um, I hope every American 
every American, but especially the African-Americans are going to get to that point. Why continue to hammer on African-Americans is because um, if you look at um, the Asian-Americans, they are so enterprising and doing everything to make sure that nothing stops them. I look at these people with pride. Look at what happens to the Japanese during the Second World War here. They led that to hinder themselves from progressing. Look at the Jews of this country, or the Jews of the world. They didn't allow the Holocaust to stop them. If not for the size of Israel, I would say Israel is one of the most powerful nations on earth today, even per capita. And they didn't rest back on, oh, Hitler killed six million, six million of us. So this is where we are going to be. Uh, look at um, the Mexicans. They are doing the jobs that African-Americans are not ready to do. And they are sending money home. Let me tell you something. When I was coming to the United States, my parents, they had to leave the state they were in and go home to retire. I was sending money from here to build a house for my parents in my village. Mexicans are doing that. And until uh, we get Section 8, housing help, many of us can do it for ourselves as African-Americans. So that, those are some of the reasons why I continue to uh, hammer on a kind of intervention uh, for the black people of this country. And look at Nigerians in, in comparison, Nigerian Americans, in comparison to African Americans. They don't want me to call myself African American, so I call myself Nigerian American. Uh, from saying that I'm an American, we are economically doing better than they are doing. But do you know what? when you want to do the national indices of black economic, economic empowerment, they are dragging us down. We are there. But per, per capita, they are dragging us down. I met a, a, an African-American in 1986 in Nigeria, a doctor of chemistry, a chemical engineer or something like that, engineering. And he said something, he said, um, Joseph, you've been in America, I was coming and going in between 1990 and there. So he said, you've been in America. I said, yeah. You see the situation with our people. One of the things I like about you Nigerians is that if you bring together 100 Nigerians in a room, almost 100% of them are undergraduate degree holders, apart, uh, except for those who are still in college. Uh, over 50% of them are graduate, uh, master's degree holder. And you can say some of them are doctoral degree holders. So, but reverse the situation. If you bring together 100 African-Americans, maybe you find 20% who are undergraduate degree holders. So that is a different, that is a problem. And until these problems are addressed, we are still going to continue to have um, riots, mayhems, lootings, and so on. Uh, the, the, the little excuse that they want, any one of them, with the help of Antifa today, want is for an accidental death of a black person. 
I, I don't believe that anyone who is fully educated will want to go and destroy because of George Floyd. That's a really tough case because, uh, you know, the man had a, a bad background. Very, very bad. Yeah, and, and you know, there's, there's questions about, you know, he could have he would have died anyway because he had drugs in his system. Um, and, and the whole thing looks bad, right? And uh, I can understand the anger. You know, initially I was very angry when I saw that. I'm like, mm-hmm. I was too. Um, I have a law degree, and um, and and I've worked in law enforcement in, in uh, at, as a evidence technician many years ago while I was in college, and you can't you you know you have to follow the evidence and find the proof and chase chase the truth right no matter where it leads you have to follow that path to the truth and um so as 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 harmful as it may be or as as painful as it may be the truth may not be what you want to hear and um sometimes that's really unfortunate so and um until uh, something is done about those things common sense tells you if a law enforcement asks you to do something, you obey. If you obey and then you are still molested or anything like that, then you can you can now uh, um, take a request to maybe go to court and say, well, this person did this to me. Shouldn't have happened. I obeyed. I've been in this country for almost 20 years now. You know how many times I've been stopped by policemen? Three times. One time, if you want me to explain, one time there was a general checking for license in Mississippi. I was stopped. Please, can you show me your license? I did. And then I was worked on to go. Second time, I was traveling with another preacher. And this, I, there was a, this a semi-trailer in front of me and got to a stop sign, four-way stop sign on the highway, Highway 45 in, in, down in Mississippi. And then I was behind him. So he took off. I stopped at the stop sign. After I took off, I stopped and then took off and then crossed to, to pass him. And then I heard siren. I was the one being chased, so I bagged. What is wrong, officer? I said, you didn't stop at the stop sign. I said, no, sir, I stopped. What happened is that I stopped, and then after I got off from the stop sign, I tried to pass the semi-trailer. That is what happened. And the preacher beside me said, yes, that is what happened. And the officer said, okay, you can go. That was the second time. The third time, I went to gas station near my house, which is about a quarter mile away. So as I was going to turn to the street before my own, I saw these blue lights behind me. So I, I entered into that street and then stopped. And the officer said, I said, what is wrong, officer? He said that there was a vehicle like yours that we have been looking for. I said, well, this is my own. He said, you are not the one. And he let me go. So in those instances, as a young person, I could have misbehaved. But I didn't. I had to obey the law. I did not run away because I didn't do anything wrong. And if I did anything wrong, the simple situation for me is to take responsibility for my action. Yeah, you know, I I wonder sometimes... You know, they don't teach common sense things in school. You know, if you get pulled over by a police officer, take the key out of the ignition, put it on the dash, put your hands on the wheel, look straight ahead, turn on the lights so that they can see inside the car, ask permission to get the license and the registration and everything. If you have, um, if you have a weapon, let them know. And, and then don't make any sudden moves or and don't argue, right? In your car is not the courtroom. It's not the time to make an argument. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, as far as faith is concerned, I mean, I, I'm I'm very impressed and and 
have a, a lot of respect for for you for for being a preacher and and um I was realizing not too long ago I chose the wrong uh I chose the wrong doctoral program to go into I mean I'm enjoying it and I'm getting a lot out of it but I wish I had gone to seminary instead the Holy Spirit can still teach you definitely but but I mean as far as religion goes in this country um what are your feelings on where God fits into government and, and laws and, and our society? What's your perspective on that? Uh, my perspective is this. Um, before I came to this country, I did a research. And then they said that the 43% of Americans go to church on Sundays. And um, because you have to start from there, how do you go to the what's your relationship even if you are not yet saved what's your relationship with god but um on personal investigation i realized that um it's not up to 43 percent of people going to church and uh, you ask why is that so this is a country that uh, is prided to have been started upon the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and on God, and in God rather, in God we trust. What happened? I believe that one of the problems is with the collision. When things started to go downhill spiritually in this country, uh, many of us clergymen, we are hypocrites. We say one thing openly, and we go into our closets to do something else. And let me tell you, people are looking at us. And once people start to say that these are hypocrites, they lose faith, they lose respect, and they lose interest. Well, that is one of the things I first realized and unfortunately, it is still continuing. Let me bring to your memory the issue of um, one of the evangelical leaders in Oklahoma about five, six years ago, who turned out to be a gay man, having girlfriend, married to his wife. That did not give a good testimony about our faith. I am sorry to say, but it needs to be said. Look at what is happening to Jerry Fowler Jr. now. That doesn't speak well of the faith. So that is number one. Number two, um, do you remember I told you of a friend I had that uh, told me about the problems in, um, about African-Americans when I was asking he told me one day that, uh, Brother Joseph, do you know that 50 years ago in Texas, Dangerfield, Texas, I remember exact word that he told me, we were still using the outhouse for everything, for bathing, for bathroom, that prosperity like we know it today was not always like that. As well, I think I know. Because when I was growing up to the outhouse in, when I was growing out was behind the house. But today we have our bathrooms in our homes. We don't have um, the line line telephone again, we have cell phones. We have color television with uh, outstanding, outstanding color to what we had 40 years ago today. What am I bringing out? Technology and prosperity are taking away our minds from God, from spiritual things. Let me give you an example. When I was growing up, some of the things in Nigeria that used to make people not, you cannot believe it. The first television station in Nigeria was in 1958. And when I was, I became a Christian, there was this uh, program, Bewitched. It used to be at 5 p.m., run at 5 p.m. on Thursdays 
which was our Bible study time. And I know a lot of people that will not go to church because they want to watch Bewitched. When I got to America, I know that they used to have uh, wrestling on Sunday morning around 10 repeats of the actual. So I, I know that some people don't go to church because they want to watch wrestling and some other programs like that. So those are the things that are actually making us to go away from uh, as the spiritual issues as Christians. And then we play into the hands of the liberal progressives, the unbelievers who actually did not have any respect for God. They didn't want to do away with God. For instance, I want to be free. I own myself. I can make decisions for myself. And they are promoting these ideas that God is irrelevant in our lives. People to make computers and hook it up with the internet and you and I can talk. I don't know where you are. I'm in Chattanooga, Tennessee. We can talk to each other. So why do we need God? What is God going to do again? I remember exactly now. In 2003, I was doing street evangelism, and I saw this young man on the street. And then I said, I, I, hello, I want to introduce Christ to you. He said, you want to introduce Christ to me? Okay, tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me. What, what is he going to do for me? I have a car. I have a house. I have television. I have everything. I have money. Tell me, tell me, tell me. And then I was shaking because I couldn't. I was... I was so afraid of what he's going to, he was going to do next. And then he said, you can't tell me. And then he spitted on me and walked away. So what do we need again from God? After all, we have everything. Before I came to this program this evening, I have traveled almost 300 miles today. 50, 60 years ago, it would take more time that I spent on the road than it is now. So those are the things. Prosperity, advancement is making us in the Western world to move away from God. And the last one, apart from the hypocrisy of the clergy, there are false preachers out there that are actually so interested in what they can make for them than leading people to Christ. I can name them. I don't want to cause any problem for your, your show. But you know these people who preach about prosperity. There's some very big names, and, and um, I think everybody knows without saying their names. <laughs> so I'm not afraid of them, but for you, I'm not going to name names. They are, they are feeding on the ignorance of the people. No wonder the Bible says, my people... Uh, 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 perish because they have no knowledge. And my people are scattered like sheep without the shepherd. The shepherds today are actually there for themselves. So those are the things. And forget about the politicians. The politicians will do what you, you will say what you want to hear. Don't have any problem with them. Anybody amongst them who comes to me and say is a Christian, okay, prove yourself. I'm not going to vote for you because you tell me you are a Christian. Because I've seen that uh, politicians lie. Uh, when I was in Nigeria, they would tell you that they are Christians, and then they get there, they are worse than the unbelievers. And once they get there, so, but I vote for you because. You say you are a conservative. You believe in the, uh, uh, in the Constitution rather than the interpreting the Constitution to do what you want, rather than promoting globalism, rather than promoting uh, 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 dependency on government and big government. So I vote for you. But I'm not voting for you because you say you are a Christian. And that is where... The Democrats are getting it wrong today when they say the evangelicals, how can they vote for a person like Trump? As if Trump is the worst person in the world. No, they are worse than, the, than Trump in many ways. But I'm not voting for Trump because he says 
he is a Christian. And actually, the man has not said that he's a Christian. I'm voting for him because he believes in regulated immigration. I'm voting for him because he believes in uh, the oppression of law, with uh, the, the, the freedom of the law enforcement to keep the law. I'm voting for him because he believes that abortion is wrong, and so on and so forth. So, so let's remove the politicians. Those two things, the, the hypocrisy of the preachers, those even who said they are true ones, and the, the false preachers who are there for themselves, and the uh, engrossment with prosperity, and um, modernity, whatever you want to call it, advancement. So those are the things that actually are affecting uh, Christianity and the faith today. America is supposed to be a land of freedom. Yeah. And so I think a lot of Christians like myself, I'm not voting in a conservative way because I want to make everybody a Christian in the United States. I mean, this is the United States should be a bastion for freedom where people can come who have been persecuted in their own countries. And so, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to welcome people with open arms that are Muslim and, and Jew and every, you know, every other Hindu and, and Buddhist and so on. But we all have to agree that you come to America, we're promoting American values and everybody should be okay living here, right? Uh, I think what's the problem is, is the left is trying to turn us into something that we aren't. They're trying to force their agenda, like with the, you know, the baker that was in Colorado, right? You know, the government got involved with that and it, you know, he should have been able to say, I don't, it's against my beliefs to bake this cake for you. There's a million other bakers in the United States. You could go to any other one of them. You could go to a gay baker for that matter, and they would be happy to bake this cake for you. But they turn this into a, you know, literally a Supreme Court case, right? So it's not just about, you know, everybody living their own lifestyle and being who they want to be. It, they want to destroy Christianity. I see that. And, and we're under attack. Well, we are helping them, unfortunately, when I mean we. Christian leaders, because of what I said earlier on, they will say something openly and do something else. And then because of that, even politicians, they don't regard us because they know our secret. They don't put much weight on what we say even when we say it openly. But for instance, I, I, I can assure you, there used to be a time when a preacher would talk and every politician will listen. But it is not more the case now because they know that, okay, a physician, heal yourself first. I believe that we are walking. I'm not here to tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming back in 10 years, 20 years, or 50 years because without everything that is happening now, like this issue of um, microchip implanting, already saying, okay, we are into the issue of 66. But I know one thing, that we are moving towards the end with what is happening now. And if we are moving towards the end, in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, I believe it is from verses 2 to 4, it says that the end will not come until there is first falling away. Falling away of what? I believe it is a falling away of Christianity. Somewhere in the New Testament Gospels, the Lord Jesus Christ says, when I come back, am I going to ever meet faith again? And somewhere else, he says that, if not that the Father cut short the day, scarcely would anyone survive. And when he said, anyone, Christians, survive this situation, so we are moving towards that. I'm not going to put a date on when it is, but there are indications that there is a kind of a swell of movement worldwide. Why, sh why should you, there be a worldwide uh, lockdown because of a pandemic? I remember when I was growing up, if there is 
a mass infection, the sick are always the ones that are quarantined. We came to the point that we now quarantined the healthy and we are not giving a room for hard immunity. Why? Is it just to see how we are going to be receptive to that kind of restriction in the future? Yeah, it was like a test run. Yes. And because of that, the level of spirituality and the number of believers are going to continue to dwindle as we continue. In spite of the negative things that are happening in the world right now, it can be very saddening, but it's, it's very encouraging to meet brothers like you. Amen. And others that I've come in contact with, like Earl Gibson and other folks on LinkedIn. So that's why it's been a blessing to meet people like you and know that there's other people out there that are solid in their faith and we can come together and, and talk about these things and support each other and so on. You remember what um, the Lord told uh, Elijah when he said, I'm the only one <laughs> remaining who has not bowed to, to Baal? The Lord said, no, I still have 7,000 men. That means, <laughs> thank God for, for people who still believe. That's awesome. Well, Joseph, thank you for sharing your story. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your insight on, you know, how things are going in America. And, and most of all, thank you for bringing your blessing of the word and encouragement for others. Thank you. I appreciate you. And please tell your, your viewers, your followers about my book, The Real Enemy of the African Americans. I believe that uh, it is important. It has a relevance to the situation amongst African Americans today. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm definitely going to share your book with everyone. So have a blessed evening. And you too. You've been listening to the America for God podcast. Don't forget to like us on free speech platforms, Parler, Gab, Kodias, MeWe, and Minds. Also spread the word among your friends and family. Because as Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Have a blessed rest of your day.